Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. For those of you who are here at our Blair campus, I want to welcome you. And for those of you who are watching online, we welcome you as well. If this is your first time with us, if this is your first experience with Reach Church, I hope and pray with all my heart that you have an amazing encounter with Jesus and that your life is changed forever. Over the next few minutes, I have the privilege and the responsibility to share with us a message that we believe God is uniquely designed for today. And I hope with all my heart that we're receptive, that our ears are, are open and that our hearts are attentive to what God wants to do. This message is a byproduct of yesterday. Last week, if you were here, you know that I got out of the way. I had been preparing a message and last minute I got out of the way and allowed two of our other part of our teaching team to come and share. I've been preparing all week for this message. And yesterday, at about 10.45, I was standing in the backyard of a house that we were raking leaves. And I was praying for the families of our community, praying specifically for the house that we were serving. And I did it again. Well, the Lord did it again. I had to go to Caleb and to Jennifer and to others and say, so about tomorrow's message. I know that all the PowerPoint's put together, the worship's already done, everything's kind of laid out. But I feel like God's calling an audible, so we're going to respond. And so I did uh, the second reasonable thing that I could do. The first would have been to go to Chipotle and to pray. (laughs) But instead, I found myself at Kona Grill having some sushi with three of our team members and dreaming and praying and leaning into today. And so I just hope with all my heart that I will walk out of obedience today and that we will receive collectively what God has for us. This is a great time for you to grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, this is an even better time for you to simply raise your hand right where you're at in your seat. Throw your hand up unapologetically, and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. It's a gift. It's yours. Have it. Keep it. Bring it. We also encourage you every week to bring something to write on and to write with. This is a great opportunity when we get into the Word like this to write down observations and insights and questions so that we can take it throughout the week and continue to study, to continue to investigate, continue to pray over what we're learning here as a body at Reach Church. If you're looking for Matthew, which is where we're going to be today, you're going to find it at the table of contents at the front of your Bible, or go a little more than halfway through your Bible. We're going to be in two different places today, Matthew chapter 22, and then we'll finish out our time today in Matthew chapter 25. I'll give you a minute to turn there. In 1992, Dr. Gary Chapman wrote a book that has now become a cornerstone for Christian counseling, specifically in marriage and relationships. The book is called The Five Love Languages. How many of you by show of hands have heard of it or you've read it or gone through it? Okay, that's a large majority of you here in our campus that have read it or heard about it. The premise is a generalized idea that there are five, what Chapman would describe as five primary ways that we as individuals receive love and that we in turn give love. Or he would argue that we give love out of the ways that we want to receive love. Of the hands that went up, do you know what your primary love language is? If you do, on the count of three, just say it. One, two, three. All of it. I mean, yeah. Mine has changed over the years. Early on, I would say it was gifts and physical touch. There are moments and seasons where I find that it's quality time and acts of service. 
Words of affirmation is another one. So those are the five, right? Gary Chapman wrote that there are these five love languages. And I'll say them again. Physical touch being one that we, we give love, and that's how we experience or express love, and we want to receive physical touch as a way of giving or receiving love. The, the, the second expression is quality time. It doesn't need to be anything specific. It's just being together. Of all my children, the six that I have, I have one that is truly a quality time kid. In fact, I was out about six weeks ago, and I was headed to Omaha. I invited her to go along with me. She jumped in my truck, and while we were driving, I ended up on a phone call with, with one of our elders for 45 minutes. When we got back, and I had to apologize to her. I said, Ryan, I'm so sorry that I ended up on the phone like that. I got a note on my desk the next day that said, Dad, I just love spending time with you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm like, man, that's amazing. I suck as a dad, but you're an awesome kid. <laughs> The third of the five is, is gifts. Liking to receive gifts, liking to give gifts as an expression of love. The fourth of five is words of affirmation. Telling others what you think of them or feel about them, and in turn, them telling you what they think or feel about you, assuming it's positive. And then the fifth is acts of service, where you do something like clean the house or do dishes. So Stacy's love languages, and I don't know if this is true in your marriage, but I've found that in 19 years of being married to Stacy, 19 years this month, 19 years next week, hey, congratulations, you've survived me for 19 years, <laughs> hallelujah. <laughs> Stacy's love language is different than mine, and I've had to learn over the years how to give love to Stacy in a way that she is most receptive to it. So Stacy's is acts of service. And quality time, followed closely by words of affirmation. Somewhere on her list is physical touch and gifts. Mine would be physical touch and gifts, preferably both. Words of affirmation is right there, and then acts of service and quality time kind of fall somewhere here. On Wednesday, Stacy's phone locked up. Would not, it just, there was a black screen with a cute white little apple right in the middle. She could do nothing to get it to work. And so she went to Verizon, which is our carrier, and sat in the Verizon store on 148th and Maple for two hours. I was in a meeting at a ministry conference actually in Omaha, and I got done with that ministry conference, and I tried to call Stacy and realized, oh, that's right, she can't answer. Her phone is dead. And so I took a gamble and I went to the Apple, or excuse me, to the Verizon store and she was there and told me she'd been sitting there for two hours. And I'm a little more assertive than Stacy. Can you imagine that? And so I, I said, well, where are you at in line? She said, I don't even know. Now keep in mind, right across the street is Chipotle. And so what I was really asking is, how long do I have before they service your phone to go across the street and honor the Lord and my body by eating Chipotle? Double chicken, white rice, Cilantro, lettuce, the, whole, the works. So I walked up to the counter. She said, what are you doing? I said, walked up to the counter. I said, we're just going to ask. Excuse me, sir. Do you know where we're at in line? He said, oh, yeah, we got two more guests in front of you, but we only have two service technicians, so it could be any length of time. What's the problem with your phone? And she said, well, it's just this black screen of death. And she can, oh, he said, oh, that's a software issue that has nothing to do with Verizon, a.k.a. you cannot get those two hours of your life back. So I looked at my wife. And you could just see the defeat that she was carrying on her face. And I said, 
you know what? I would love to take your phone to the Apple store for you because we have Reach Kids Midweek and I know you got to get back there and, and so do I, but you're probably more valuable to them than I am. So I'll let you go and I'll take your phone. And she said, are you serious? I said, of course, I love you. I would, I would love to do that for you. And so I went to Chipotle. <laughs> I needed to refuel my body to go to the Apple store. And I ended up at Village Point and go to the Apple store and they were fantastic. Within minutes, I was dealing with a service tech and the most amazing thing happened. He said, we have to disable your find my iPhone so that we can reset your phone. Can you call your wife? <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and my wife decided to do some shopping on her way home at Target and Costco, wherever she went. So I couldn't get a hold of her. I, I, anyway, long story short, I'm going through every password I could possibly think of, and I finally, by the grace of God, stumbled across her password. We got it fixed. They did a factory reset, and it's as good as new. Got home. And she said, thank you so much for, for doing that. That was really, that meant a lot to me that you would do that. Now, what did it cost me? A couple of hours to demonstrate, to show her that I love her. And so I thought, hey, this is going to be a good week. Friday, I took half a day off of work and we went back out to Omaha and we just hung out. We had lunch at Chipotle. <laughs> and then we did a little bit of early Christmas shopping and we hung out. And at one point, Stacy looked at me, and she grabbed my hand. She said, we were, guys, we were at Shields looking at uh, guns and ammo for the hunting season. So it was a really cool thing. And she grabbed my hand. She said, you do realize that this is the longest time that we've spent alone together without kids in like a year. And we're at Shields looking at guns. And I said, <laughs> praise God. <laughs> you know, the, we laugh about that. But there are a lot of ways that we can give and that we should express our love for one another. I heard early on when we were doing marriage counseling, a pastor say to us, don't ever be the guy who says to his wife, hey, on the day that we got married, I told you I love you, and if it changes, I'll let you know. That's not going to get you very far. It needs to be a continuation of love, both given and received, because that's the byproduct of a growing relationship. And so I was thinking about the Bible. And from Genesis to Revelation, did you know that the, the most common example where comparison between God and his people is concerned is the marriage relationship? The bridegroom, the bride, the father, his children, God, his church. The, the, the biggest Example used most often throughout Scripture to describe and define humanity's relationship as we interact with the living God of the universe is marriage. And so, if I were to just take on the surface the understanding that as the marriage grows, so do the acts of love and expression of love, well, then I should take that and equate that to a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. That as our relationship with God grows, our acts of love and our expressions of love grow with our relationship. Amen? And that's what this series is all about, this worship series. The premise of this entire series is worth-ship. That regardless of your circumstances or surroundings, that we worship God because he's worth it. The creator, the author, the perfecter of the universe, the sustainer of life, the giver of life, the one who pulls us out of darkness, calls us by name, robs the grave of our death and restores us, redeems us, renews us, regenerates us, creates in us anew. 
And as a byproduct of that relationship, we are tasked with the honor, not just obligation, but with the honor to worship God through expressions of our gratitude and our thanksgiving and our appreciation and our love. And so our hope as a church and as a teaching team is that this series will be a collection of expressions that we lean into the word of God together and glean from it so that we can learn how to express our love to the Father as an act of worship. Week one, Pastor Caleb kicked off our series talking about yada and tehillah, that, that worship is a physical expression, that it's a posture of the human condition expressed and realized in our body, that we celebrate with singing and clapping and dancing and prostrate before the, the Lord. Week two, Caden Anderson and Russell Seymour, our youth pastor, talked about worship and sacrifice being the expression of love to God, that we sacrifice. Gold and silver I don't have, but what I have I give you. And that one of the greatest gifts that we can give God in worship is to give ourselves away to others. And today, we're going to look at the expression of love through worship in service. Father, as we jump into the time of your word, I pray that you would redeem it for our good and for your glory. Quicken your word to our hearts. Holy Spirit, continue to come alive in us. Help me to honor my commission this morning to rightly divide your word with authenticity and accuracy and integrity and in a way that connects to our heads and our hearts and is realized in how we live out our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you. Amen. So Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34, and then we're going to jump over to Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, here in a few moments. Jesus is at the very end of his life and ministry, this side of heaven. And as he's come into the temple, Jerusalem, with pomp and circumstance on a donkey, with this tremendous celebration, as it were. People are coming from all over the place to see Jesus for themselves and to hear Jesus for themselves and to experience Jesus for themselves. There's been a lot of ideas. There's been a lot of rumors, a lot of town talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus believes and what Jesus is doing here and the impact that it's had on humanity. And so people, curious by nature, want to see and experience Jesus for themselves. And among them are multiple religious sects. You've got the Essenes, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, who are both a part of the Sanhedrin, which we'll get into in just a moment. You've got the scribes. These individuals are coming to Jesus, and as Jesus enters the temple, he begins to teach. And as he's teaching, there's a, a group called the Sadducees that are a part of the ruling body at that time. Now, the ruling body is made up of 70 individuals, and two-thirds of this ruling body in this Greco-Roman world is made up of these Sadducees. These Sadducees are wealthy landowners. They are the politicians of their time. They use their wealth to help 
control the society around them. They lean into their own ideologies and understandings. And they are, they are a, a highly, highly, highly conservative group of people. They know the Torah, the first five books known as the Pentateuch. They know it well. And that, that's what they hold to is what's written down. The Pharisees, on the other hand, hold to both written and oral traditions. And in these two camps, they both collectively agree that there are 613 laws known as the Mosaic Laws, 365 prohibitions and 248 mandates on a follower of God. And these Sadducees were unique because they did not believe in the spiritual things and they did not believe in the resurrection. And so Jesus is there teaching and these Sadducees come to Jesus and they have this really curious conversation about this ideology of heaven and who we're going to be married to in heaven and the resurrection. And Jesus, in this, he lays the smack down verbally and shuts the mouths of the Sadducees and blows the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes and others around. There's this silence that falls across the people in this conversation that's taking place, this teaching. This is where we pick up in verse 31, or excuse me, verse 34 of chapter 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. And you say, why would they do that? If Jesus is in a public gathering and he's just taught and it's been crystal clear and the Sadducees have been silenced, why would the Pharisees continue the conversation? Because their reputation is on the line. They're tied to the, to, the, to the Sadducees in that they're all a part of the Sanhedrin and, and they're disdained for Jesus and the Sadducees have been quieted. Now the Pharisees are going to take their crack at Jesus. And so they get together and they begin to question themselves. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to stop this man, this Jesus, the Nazarene, and this movement that is ensuing? In verse 35, one of them an expert in religious law. Now, moments ago, I told you there were various religious sects. This is actually a scribe. And a scribe would be like a lawyer. They were a research lawyer. They were responsible for knowing the intricacies of the Levitical laws, the Mosaic law, and all that they entail, as well as the punishments that would have a, be directly tied to these laws, whether they were omitted or committed. And they're looking at the law. And here's the thing that you need to understand. For them, to not follow one of these laws was equally egregious to another. Where we look at sin and we look at the law, none of us, if we're honest, would equate murder to a speeding ticket. Would we? In our society, do they carry the same weight? First degree murder or trying to get to Chipotle after church before the line really gets going and, and football kicks off. We would say that according to our societal standards, murder is worse. Now, if you don't get out of my way and let me get to Chipotle, I might speed and kill you. I don't know. I get hangry about 1230. But we would all agree that one is more egregious than another. In the sight of God, the creator of the universe, the Bible declares that all sin equally separates us from God. And so what the scribe is about to do is try to entrap Jesus to get him to say something that would be counter to what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes 
practiced and believed publicly there. So verse 35, one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Verse 36 says, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses, also known as the Mosaic law? But Jesus replied, this is what is also known as the Shema. If you would in your margin or whatever you're taking notes on, I would encourage you to write down Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 3, what you're going to read is going to pour into verse 4 and verse 5. But Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a covenant conversation that is being established between God and his people. And this is a conditional covenant. There are two types of covenant in Scripture. One is a conditional covenant. You do for me and I'll do for you. Most predominantly seen in the Old Testament. The Davidic covenant the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Garden Covenant. And we see Jesus come onto the scene and he offers this unconditional covenant. It's not you do for me and I'll do for you. It's I've done for you. Now you receive the gift that I have to offer, which is eternal life in me, through me, by me. So in this Mosaic Covenant, this Mosaic Law known as the Shema, God is establishing the boundaries and the expectations of their relationship being between God and the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And in that, he said, hear, O Israel. And the word Shema literally means, translated in the original Hebrew language, hear. It means to listen, to pay attention to. So now Jesus is asked this question, which is the greatest law, and he says this from the Shema. So he's playing their game. He's playing to their intellect. Remember, these are not just ordinary, everyday individuals. These are experts in the law. But rather than going on through Exodus 20, don't have any idols, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain, honor your father and mother, keep the Sabbath, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, and a whole list of what not to do, Jesus is going to flip the script and he's going to offer them a simple solution. And that simple solution is in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. He quotes for them, you must love the Lord. Now keep in mind, Lord there is all caps, which means Yahweh. He is the covenant keeper, the creator of the whole universe. He's reminding them of the covenant that they are under. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Now these three, we don't have time to unpack all of this like I wish we did, but what is imperative for this conversation here and now is that these three represent the totality of the human condition, physical, mental, and spiritual. With all the heart, that is the cardia, it represents not the human heart with four valves that push blood to and from. It actually is a deeper meaning. It means the, the inner recesses of the human gut. You see, in this culture and context, in the Greco-Roman world, they believed that the, the innermost parts of a man, their stomach, their entrails, was where life was held. And so Jesus here says, from the very depths of inside of you physically, love God. And now with the soul, this is, the, this is something even bigger and greater. It's, it's, it's beyond the physical. It is, it, is, it is the spiritual. It is encapsulating the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. He says you must love the God with all of your mind, will, and emotions. Jesus 
paints this word picture to love God with every fiber of our being, that this is the first and greatest commandment. Now, why would Jesus say the first and greatest? Isn't that a setup for failure? And I would tell you what Caleb told you a couple weeks ago, and what, what I believe Russell reminded us of, is that Scripture is not designed to keep us, to prohibit us from, but to protect us for the things of God. And so as Jesus establishes using their own intellect and the very covenant that they agreed to, their people from generation to generation have agreed to in the Shema, this covenant, this conditional covenant, he's saying that, listen, if you can get to the place where you love God with every fiber of your being, the first and greatest commandment, the dominoes will fall effectively thereafter, won't they? If I am actively pursuing If I'm actively pursuing honoring God with every fiber of my being, with my body, if I'm pursuing God with my mind, if I'm pursuing God with my words, if I'm pursuing God with my time, if I'm pursuing God with my treasures, if I'm pursuing God with my relationships, if everything is birthed out of this epicenter that is loving God with every fiber of my being, if I am proactively loving, then do I need to prohibitly keep away from anything? And the answer is simply no, because we're spending so much time doing the things that God has called us to that we will not be living in separation of God and sin. And so he tells his audience, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and every other onlooker, that the greatest commandment is to love God with everything. But then he says something unique, something that is unique to this conversation that they have never heard like this before. In verse 39, here's a second equally important commandment. So if, if Jesus has just established that the greatest commandment is to love God with every fiber of your being, what could be equally important? What could carry as much weight as that? Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. Verse 40, the entire law, the rest of it, all All the demands of the prophets, they're based on these two commandments. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Turn to Matthew 25, please. We'll be in verse 31 here in just a moment. So Caleb, a couple of weeks ago, did a brilliant job of attempting to enunciate some Hebrew words for worship. Tahila, Yadah, and others. And he talked about how in our culture, in our society, we use one word to explain a multitude of things. And he even referenced that in the Bible, in the Greco-Roman world at this time, there are multiple descriptors for the word love, where you and I would use the word love loosely in the same sentence as I love my wife and I love my children, we love our Kansas City Royals and our Kansas City Chiefs. I want to know what's happening with society, by the way. Football fans, just for a moment, let's pause this message and lean in. I've seen more Raiders fans this week than I've seen in my entire life. What is happening with society? Are we serious right now? How creative are they? Black and silver. Woo. You're a bunch of pirates living in Las Vegas, the city of sin. Man, you, you got a warden and a bunch of parolees out there. 
I don't even understand what's happening. Join God's team, the Philadelphia Eagles. What does the Bible say about the, the Holy Spirit? That we will mount up on wings like eagles. God's team. Hallelujah. That was a word from the Lord. I've never thought that before in my life. Praise you, Jesus. Fly, eagles, fly. My Kansas City Chiefs fans, Patrick Mahomes is my starting quarterback for my fantasy league. I'm going to take a moment of silence because he's cost me the entire season. (laughs) There's four words in the Bible, in the New Testament, that give greater detail to love. Where we throw around the word love, I love my wife, I love my children, I love Rocky Road ice cream. The four words in scripture are eros, which is an erotic sexual love created for a husband and wife. Phileo, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, which is a brotherly love. Storge, which is like a stork that brings a baby. It's a, it's a paternal, compassionate kind of love like a father has for his children or a mother has for her children. And then there's agape. And in this word here, in the original language, it's agapos. And agapos literally means to love without condition, to love beyond expectation. It's a radical, generous love. And in this language, when Jesus tells these scribes and other onlookers that we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, it would easily be attainable for us to Philadelphia or to phileo our brothers. You're called to phileo your brothers, to to do good for them and expect that they're going to do good in return. It would be easy to do a storge kind of love. How many of you have someone that's taken you under their wing and has become a, 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 like a, a paternal mentor to you? They're not your biological parents, but you view them that way, or you've taken on others in that manner. It would even be understandable in our culture, though inconsistent with Scripture, we've been taught that one of the ways that we express love to people is through sex, through intimacy. But our society has robbed us of the absolute definition of intimacy that honors God and is consistent with his calling on our lives. But what Jesus says is that you are called to agapos, to love beyond condition, without merit, and without expectation of receiving in return your neighbor as yourself. And the reason that this is so hard for us to understand is because if we're honest, most of us live someplace between thinking too highly of ourselves and self-deprecation. Let me say that again, because at least for me, this has been true all too often in my life. When we think about ourselves, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes we are so arrogant about how we view ourselves that we are so, and you know what I'm talking about. You've looked in the mirror at one time in your life and thought, man, I am, I am that good looking. You know, I, I am. Or you thought that you are that smart or that talented or that good and you've given yourself credit that let's be honest we don't really deserve because if we take credit for how great we are then we need to accept full credit for how rotten we are and then there are times where we've looked at our lives and we've self-deprecated and we've actually made ourselves a whole lot worse than we really are so when we think about loving our neighbors as ourselves it gets convoluted but when we think about loving our neighbors as ourselves the way Jesus is calling us to love without exception without question beyond merit without expectation of return we have to ask and answer what does that kind of love look like What does a love like that look like Great question congregation I'm glad you asked and we're going to answer that right now Matthew 25 
beginning in verse 31. This is the Olivet Discourse. You say, Pastor, what's the Olivet Discourse? It's a doctrinal way of explaining Jesus' last conversation with his disciples and onlookers before he's arrested. He leaves the temple. He goes up on the side of the Mount of Olives with his disciples and others. He sits down with them and he begins to teach them in parables. And he's explaining things of heaven and things that are to come and expectations and this relationship that we've forged with Jesus and with God. And in this, there's this conversation about the greatest and the least and masters and slaves and all the kingdom coming and what all this means. And here in verse 31, Jesus is going to speak in a parable that is consistent with the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7. If you want to write that down and go visit that later as well, Daniel 7, Jesus sits down and beginning in verse 31, he says this with his disciples at hand, but... When the Son of Man, that is found in Daniel 7, Son of Man is a, is a way of explaining and helping understand how heaven meets earth in the person of Jesus Christ, God in flesh. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, now he's talking about his second coming, the return. When he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then Jesus will sit Upon his glorious throne, there's something unique here that we would miss if we don't understand the context of the scripture. When it says here that he will sit upon his glorious throne, what we need to understand is after a long day working and you're finished with your task that day, what do you do? Many of you will go and you'll sit and you'll just look at it. Many of you grass connoisseurs, you know what I'm talking about. You're meticulous about how you keep your grass. Don't you cut your grass and then blow your grass and bag your grass and then just sit there and admire your grass? Why? Because the work is done. It's complete. It's finished. This is what Jesus is saying, that when he comes back, the work will be done. And he's going to sit in his glorious throne. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is unique for Jesus' disciples and those hearing. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Previous to Jesus' coming, it was set apart for God's elect people, the nation of Israel. And now Jesus is introducing once and for all, for all, this love that will be available to all that receive Jesus' love for all. And he says all the nations will be gathered in his presence. There will be a time of judgment where we will be separated sheep from goats. This is a very, very, very understandable uh, parable to the people who are listening because they were shepherds by, by, by nature. This is what they did vocationally and they had the responsibility to bring in the livestock and to separate out the sheep into the sheep pen and the goats or anything else that didn't belong. Now what is he talking about here? He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the eternal life that will be lived and realized in heaven or in hell. In heaven by those that know Jesus and actively pursue him. Or in hell by those who do not know Jesus in a right relationship with him that will spend an eternal life in hell. Separated from God. Verse 33. He'll place the sheep at his right hand. That's the place of honor. That's an honored guest. I wonder what Jesus is going to do with the left-handed people, though. Like, when I go out to eat with Mark, he's left-handed. He can never sit on my right because he does this right here. And I, and I move over. We'll sit at another table. All the nations will be gathered, and he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Verse 34. Then... 
The king, who's the king? Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. You see, he's been at work preparing this place for us from before our inception, this eternal life lived in glory, realized at the right hand of the king before the father. In verse 35, now he's going to give six predicators on how we've been preparing for this moment. For I was hungry and you fed me. And I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Verse 37. Then these righteous ones. Who are the righteous ones? Go back to Matthew 23. And you're going to see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they are the righteous ones. In the original language, the righteous literally means right living or right knowledge. These are the people that cared about living out the knowledge that they had of the law. These are the people that cared more about being right than they did about a right relationship with Jesus. This is the distinctive between head knowledge and applied knowledge. Head knowledge puffs up. We think more of ourselves than we really ought to. We spend exorbitant amounts of time collecting theological information. Theology literally means the study of God. We study different theologies and different ideologies and different texts. And we should, the Bible actually says, to study so that we might show ourselves approved to be ready to give an answer for the reason that we have hope in season and out of season. I, among everybody in this room, am probably the chief proponent of studying the word of God, but the caveat being not so that I know more than the other person or so that I'm the smartest guy in the room, but so that it informs how we live our lives as followers of Jesus. Head knowledge puffs up, applied knowledge builds up. It builds up the kingdom of God, it builds up the kingdom economy, and it builds others up. Jesus says of these six distinctives, I was and you, I was and you, I was and you, hungry and thirsty and a stranger, and naked, and sick, and in prison. Now these righteous men who care more about being right than a right relationship with Jesus, they reply, Lord, Lord, when do we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Now listen, pay attention to, to the usage of the, the, the nouns here, the pronouns, the proper. They're talking about the singular person of Jesus. Or see you as a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing. When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40. And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. James 127. Write that down in your margin and go look at it. James 127 says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress 
and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So one of the questions I would ask us to wrestle with this morning is, do we care about being righteous or having a right relationship? Do you care more about being right or having that right relationship with Jesus? Because in the end, when you and I stand before the baby seat of judgment, every one of us is going to be held accountable for what we did with what we knew and the resources available to us. And what I find hard to believe in what is consistent with Scripture is that I don't see anywhere in Scripture where God, the creator, author, perfecter, and sustainer of the entire universe is going to say, well done. I'm so glad you're so smart. What did you do with the time that I gave you that side of eternity? What did you do with the relationships that I gave you that side of eternity? What did you do with the finances that I gave you that side of eternity? What did you do with the opportunities, the on-ramps that I created for you that side of eternity? What did you do with everything that I gave you? You understood a lot, you studied a lot, but what did you do? Can I ask you a question going back to the five love languages? Thinking, and I want us to understand very clearly what this looks like. There's five love languages according to Chapman. Physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, and gifts. The equation, or, or, or something that, that would be equatable, rather, to what Jesus is, is, what I'm asking and what Jesus is wrestling with is, when we stand before God on judgment day, and we can sit there and say, man, we, we had all this knowledge and we gave gifts to ourselves. And, and, and I, I, I thought a lot of really nice things about myself. And I spent a lot of time on myself doing the things that I wanted to do. And, and, and I did a lot of things around my house and my yard for me. And I bought myself things that I really liked. If I went to my wife and our marriage counselor, well, let's just say we, we were in a pretty rough spot and we needed to go see a marriage counselor. And the marriage counselor said, what seems to be the problem? And my, my wife says, well, he's selfish. And I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm very familiar with all, the, all these, the five love languages. I buy myself stuff all the time. I tell myself all the time how amazing I am. I spend so much time with myself, I don't know, I have no more time to spend with myself. I'm so good at it. Would the counselor look and say to my wife, oh, you're an idiot. This guy's got it figured out. No, he'd look at me and say, wow, get out your wallet. You're going to be here a while. Why would any of us, we would never enter a marriage relationship like that. What's in it for me and how much we know about us. We want to get to know our spouse and how to love them and cherish them and honor them because that is the right thing to do. And the byproduct, the natural byproduct of our love for others is how we treat them. Not what we know about them, but how we treat them. Sometimes I get this right and other times I don't. About three weeks ago, I was sitting in my living room and Stacy started telling me what was going on. And I started talking back, and I didn't realize it, but I was just, I, I knew the answer. I knew how she could make it better. And standing up with tears in her eyes, she said, just once, I would like to talk to my husband and not my pastor. And I said, call Terry, make an appointment. <laughs> I, I did not say that. I was messed up. I, that, that wrecked me. I said, well, hold on. You mean to tell me there are times that you just want to talk and you don't want me to fix it? 
Can I, can I get an amen from a guy in this room? If, why are you telling me this stuff if you don't want me to fix it? I literally know how to fix it. She said, I just want you to listen and care about me. So guys, free tip. I'm going to teach you right now. And I literally asked my wife, I'd do this. Open your mouth, take your tongue, stick it out a little bit and go like this. Hmm? And then close your lips. Close your lips like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bring a napkin because sometimes you're going to have to wipe the blood. That was not a hallelujah moment. I'm up here being vulnerable telling you about how messed up I am and you just, hallelujah, shot me down. Jesus is coming back and I get it. Oh, that's good. Men suck. Hallelujah. Finally. We're not going to include that in the next service. <laughs> James 1.27 says pure and genuine religion, the kind that God finds acceptable, is caring for the orphans and the widows and the least of these. Matthew 22 37 and on says the greatest things that we can do as followers of Jesus is to love God with everything we have and to love others with an agapo kind of love, an agape kind of love. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us the answer. He takes all the guesswork away. Those of you who are naked and thirsty and hungry and sick and in prison, You see, what Jesus was talking about is one of the most dangerous of sins. These are sins of omission. You see, we always focus on the sins of commission, don't we? Did I cuss today? Did I lie today? Did I lust today? Did I murder today? Did I overindulge today? Did I get drunk today? Did I commit gluttony today? And we look at everything we know we're not supposed to do. Did I take a graven image? Did I I take the Lord's name in vain? But what about what we know we're supposed to do that we don't do? You see, worship, worthyship, is an outward expression of our relationship with God. It's giving of ourselves in singing, in praying, in clapping, in dancing, and with our physical posture, but it's also in how we serve others. Did you know the Bible says that when you work, work as unto the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Let me say that again. Lean in. The Bible says that when you and I work, that we are called to physically work as though we're working for the Lord, that that is a spiritual act of worship. So when we are serving others, when I had the, the, the leaf blower yesterday and the rakes and I was out there with, with almost 200 people in our community and I'm sitting there thinking, this is so cool. The thought occurred to me that this is not just work. This is worship, that we are loving God well by loving our neighbors well that one of the greatest expressions of our love to God isn't quality time or words of affirmation or physical touch. It's serving others. It's looking for the orphans and the widows and the least of these. It's paying attention to those who are in need. We're, in just a moment, I'm going to take an opportunity to celebrate what God did yesterday. But one example was we were all finished. We were done. We were done for the day. We had accomplished everything we had set out to accomplish and a whole lot more yesterday. One of our amazing volunteers... 
happened to be driving by a home and saw an elderly gentleman. He had a very large yard, just completely covered with leaves. And he saw that this individual was, was outside by himself trying to do this work and sat down to take a break. And, and, and so they came back and they told us about it. We took like a caravan, about 30 people went over there. And, and one of the ladies that was working with us got out and said, sir, he was taking a break. Can we help you? And he said, I ain't got no money to pay you. And she said, we don't want your money. We just want to bless you. He said, go ahead. (laughs) And we stormed his yard. It was an opportunity to worship God by serving someone in our community. And yesterday, I believe with all my heart, reached church, God was worshiped. God was worshiped through service. And I'm going to take this opportunity to invite my friend, Steve Doolin, our outreach pastor, to the stage with me. And we're going to just talk for a moment and share with with you because many of you were a part of the event but don't know the impact. And many of you weren't able to be there and weren't able to experience it. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. I like your shoes. Thanks. Me too. They look good on you. Yeah, I'm keeping them. (laughs) Steve, I would love for you to take just a minute I say just a minute. I know what's about to happen. Tell all of the people that are here at our campus and I'm watching online about your vision for outreach and serving our community. Well, I think it goes hand in hand with the vision here at Reach Church. Our vision here is to be a community where people encounter Jesus in their lives are changed forever. That's good. And so we do that well inside these four walls. But we need to do that even better outside Amen. these four walls. That's good. And so the vision for outreach at Reach Church is just that. Get out there, find a hole or a need in our community, and fill it with service. That's good. Absolutely. Amen. And that was realized yesterday, wasn't it? Yes, it was. We did our second annual fall cleanup. And I was already talking to an individual in the church and said, I wish we'd do a lot more of those. It was amazing. I wish we had more days like that every year. But for, the, for, for all of us, both those that served yesterday that were able to and those that weren't, I would love for you to tell us, I want you to brag on God for just a moment, brag on our people and what God did yesterday. What was, what was the turnout? What was it like? Well, uh, some people would say, you know, we don't want to hear the numbers because that might be boasting or things like that. And I would say the numbers, we want to celebrate. Amen. We want to celebrate the numbers because every number has a name and every name matters to That's God. Right. That's good. And so I would say that last year when we did this, the very first year, we had 133 volunteers. That was awesome. Yeah. Uh, this year, we had 173 volunteers. That's right. 173 of you out in our community making a massive impact, Amen. changing people's lives. That is, that is beyond comprehension. Last year, we broke records with 133. This year, we just wiped them out, wiped them all out. Yeah, yeah. Super, super cool to be able to do that. We served 54 homes. Yeah. We hauled over 700 bags of debris <laughs> away. That is a Maybe. lot of bags of debris. I don't know if you guys know that or not. That's that a lot. Um, and we uh, had 75 crazy student youth out there um, doing amazing things. So super, super fun day to serve our community in radical ways. Not only those 50 plus homes, we also did West School. Correct. And then collectively in one day, we worked 694 hours. That's correct. 
694 hours loving this community. Now, those numbers are cool. They're metrics that kind of judge some of the health and, and where we're at now compared to last year and hopefully where we want to be in the future. But they don't tell the story. I would love for you to take an opportunity right now just to share maybe a story or two that, that happened as a byproduct of yesterday. Well, you stole one of mine. So uh, talking about our, our end of the day, but it was awesome and it was super impactful. But I have two I'll share with you real quick. One of our teams went up to a house and knocked on the door and said, hey, can we serve you today? Can we rake your leaves? Can we uh, clean up your yard? And an elderly gentleman answered the door and he heard what we were offering and uh, it broke him. And he shared with that team member how he is going through chemotherapy Mm. and how he can't get outside Mm. and do the things that we can because we're strong. And we have gifts. And that gift, whether you know it or not, is just serving people and filling in the gaps. So we came alongside that gentleman and absolutely beautified his yard. It was super awesome. I am so proud of everybody involved in yesterday. So that was story number one. Story number two was we were at a house and we were moving to the next yard and there was an elderly guy in the backyard and uh, we moved some of his uh, debris that had been there for years and we said, hey, can we do your yard? And he said, no, I want you to do the neighbor's yard on the other side of me first. And we said, oh, okay. And he explained to us how there was an 84-year-old woman that lived there and she was in the hospital right now getting care. And so we were able to absolutely deck out her home so when she comes home from the hospital, hopefully her life is radically transformed just by a small effort that we had with some people at her yard. So the, and then, oh, by the way, we went back in and we uh, helped that guy out too and did his yard. It was awesome. So super, super cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like me. About 10.45, I was in the back of that, that house blowing the, the leaves, and that thought just occurred to me that this was worship. You told me this morning with tears in your eyes and goosebumps everywhere that you hadn't worshiped like that in a long time. I'd love for you to explain. Well, this series to me is super amazing. Like all of the different ways that we are going to be talking about worshiping, what that looks like for everybody. And your worship looks different than mine, and that's okay. That's what God has given us. But I felt like I was worshiping God all day yesterday and watching worship happen in the lives of other people in their service. And so when I, I was getting texts bombarded all day long by this is amazing and I can't believe we're doing this and, and all of the impact, which is super good. And so I found myself and we as an outreach team, we went and celebrated the events after and we, we praised God for what we, we were able to do. And I literally fell asleep last night in my bed with tears in my eyes, praising God, worshiping. That's good. Because of what had transpired that day, yesterday, as a whole. And that's that's radical. And that's worship. It looks different. Uh, You don't want me up here screaming like a yak because that's what it sounds sounds like. like. I'm not not kidding. Uh, But but I can worship in different ways, and I'm gifted at at that. And that's, that's all glory to God, by the way. One of the things you said yesterday that was really telling for me, and I can imagine if this is how you feel, that many of you feel this way as well. 
not only did we get to serve our community, but you said to me, Andrew, I've been on staff almost two years. February will be two years. And you said, I experienced more community, meeting me. I mean, you probably didn't know half the people that were serving out there yesterday because there's so many new people. And you were just talking about how this is a great opportunity to build community as a church. Yeah, it's a community group, right? You get put in a group, you don't know everybody there. It's a little bit awkward. That's okay. Let's meet some people. Like, that's really cool. I met so many people that I had not had the privilege of knowing or speaking to until yesterday. And we got to sweat a little bit together, maybe even bleed a little bit. I got a band-aid on my toe. Uh, all kinds of stuff that, that we got to share and experience together and, and grow a little bit through service and now, I hope, this morning, actually, I said hi to a few people. I won't say your names, but I said hi to a few people that I met yesterday. And it's super exciting. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah, and that's a, that's a cool way. It's a cool on-ramp at a growing church for people to get to know one another is through smaller events like that. Last question, and I'll let you go. Anybody who's sitting here that maybe wants more opportunities to serve or that didn't have the opportunity to serve yesterday but would like to in the future, what would you say about outreach and service as worship here at the church? How could they get involved? What's their next step? Um, you can come find myself or Brooke Boswell, her nickname, a.k.a. Brookie. Um, she will be out in the lobby, same with myself. Most weeks we're out there. Come find us, talk to us, ask us what's coming up. You'll also see it um, on the big screens or on the monitor, uh, wherever you're watching with us, what's coming up as we go that way. Event, outreach is event-driven, so we're always looking for ways to partner with other businesses and nonprofits and whatnot in the community. So we want to do that. So that's really, there is some space between those. So if you're outreach bound, we'd love to talk to you about that. But I, I also want to say, and we plug it here at Reach Church every single week, um, and that's great. And a lot of you, over 350, are plugged in in some type of volunteer ing regularly here at Reach Church. But there's always opportunities that we can have you serve here at Reach Church in so many different ways. Our, our next generations, if you don't know, our kids here at Reach Church is ridiculous in a good way. We have like, we have like an elementary school here every Wednesday night. I don't know if you know that. It is, that is truth. I'm not, not making that up. It is crazy. We need people. Yeah. We need people to tell these young ones about Jesus. Amen. We need you to give up a little bit of sacrifice, sacrifice a little bit, and show up and help on Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings. That's another opportunity for kids. But there's stuff outside of that. If, if you don't like kids or anything like that, uh, well... I used to say I didn't love kids, but uh, Bethany changed my heart. Now I like them a little bit. But um, anyways, lots of different opportunities. Use the QR code on this out in the lobby. Go talk to somebody out at the Connect Center. They would love to talk to you. Seriously, um, get plugged in. Go serve this Jesus that is in you and has saved you. Not only do our children need help, on Wednesday night... I just want to put this in perspective. A year ago, July, we hired Russell, our youth pastor. They had 30 students at our first event. On Wednesday night at a regular gathering, last Wednesday night, we had 149 in this room right here. It was crazy, y'all. No. It was crazy. And the best part is there's a 20-minute transition where all the children are in here at the same time that all the youth are in here. And, and it's, um, it's, it's such a cool experience to see God doing what he's doing. 
I, I just, I'll, I'll let you go, man. I appreciate that. Thank you, Steve. Guys, thanks, Steve, for us. The worship team is going to come out. We're going to continue to worship right now in song. We're going to celebrate God with our music by lifting our voices and our hands and aligning our body, the posture of our bodies with the celebration that God deserves. But I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't remind us that James 1.27 that says pure religion, genuine, authentic religion is caring for the orphans and the widows and the very least of these. This is the kind of worship that God finds acceptable. And my challenge, my charge to each and every one of us this morning, beginning with me, is that we will learn to express our love of God by how we serve those around us. This week, every one of you will have an opportunity to serve somebody, I promise. It's coming up. We live in Nebraska, it's inevitable. We're gonna have snow. Take your snowblower, close your mouth, pour some extra coffee, and just drive through the neighborhoods. If you have a Ford truck, you'll be fine. And start blowing snow out of your driveways of your neighbors. Buy somebody's lunch this week just because. Go visit somebody who's a shut-in just because. Find a single mom that you know that's struggling and ask this question, how can you, how can you help? Next week, I just want you to know, next week I am talking about money. It's happening. Don't not show up. We're not talking about what we need. I don't believe where money is concerned. It's about what, what God wants from us, but it's what God wants for us. And we're not talking about how to win with your money. And we're not talking about, like, this, this church doesn't need your money. That's not what this is. That's not what this is at all. What we're going to talk about is how we can glorify God through being good stewards of our finances and blessing others. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to challenge you to begin to bring some extra money. And we're going to have a, 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 a plexiglass box that you're going to get to see. And at the end of our challenge, this church, you, we are going to find some people, just like I mentioned, a single mom in need, and we are going to give them some money to say, we love you and we want to bless you. Those are very real, tangible ways that we can show how we love God by serving one another. Father, be it so. I pray, I pray that you would stir up a fire so deep within us that we can't help but live it out as a natural byproduct of the salvation that we've received from you, that the overflowing of our gratitude would be an expression of serving others. A subtle, simple way of holding a door for somebody as they're coming and going, to very proactively finding the needs of the orphans and the widows and the least of these and meeting those needs. Help us to serve well. And not because of how we will be seen by people or what people will say about us, but because we love you. And because we love you and want to worship you, we're going to love others well. And all for their good and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.